All right. So this is the very first run of All Up In It, which is um, a series of conversations I've been dreaming about for some time that really gets into uh, what it means to be human in the process of learning and growth, which we all are all the time, whether we're paying attention to it or not. Um, and yet we tend to tell stories from the context of I have completed this and I know exactly what I'm doing and aren't I so tidy and isn't everything so great. And I find that just far less interesting and inspiring than recognizing that the process of learning and becoming and evolving is messy and doesn't actually include any defined ending. So um, Mike, thank you so much for joining me in this this little experiment, this little passion project of mine. And I'd love to just kick it to you to introduce yourself to anybody who happens to be watching um, and tell us who you are as a human. How do you think of yourself as a human these days? Well, thanks for having me be a part of it, SB. It's, uh, I always enjoy having conversations with you and um, really looking forward to this one. So who am I as a human? Well, my name is Mike Angelillo. And if I had to say who I was as a human, the first thing that immediately pops to my mind and just to spit it out there is I'm a seeker. Um, and what does that mean? Um, I, I constantly feel like I'm a person that's interested in learning new things or deeping or thinking deeper about the things that are important to me. Um, always a seeker in a way for new thoughts, new perspectives, and new understandings of what it's to be like to be a human. Uh, better understandings of my own self, uh, my own challenges, my own faults, my own fears, my own strengths, and. Um, Constantly, I, I hate to just use the word improve upon those. It's more of an awareness or understanding of them mm. more than anything else. Um, so that's why I would say I, I, the first thing that jumps to my mind is I'm a seeker. The second thing I would say is I tend to be, and maybe to a fault at times, an internal optimist. Um, I, I, I generally fall on the optimistic side of things, both in the people that I deal with. I, I tend to see and think the best of them. Um, that things will work out in the end one way or the other. And I, I generally deal with even the challenges and the the low times of my life with some level of humor to get through it, whether that's a coping mechanism or just who I am. Um, that optimistic side always kind of goes through. Um, and I guess that the third thing I would say that I am is someone who really cares about their social relationships, mm -hmm. um, friends, family, you know, the different roles and patterns that you have in that life, whether it's a friend, whether it's a spouse, father, sis, uh, brother, um, all those things kind of are important to me in my life. And um, going back to my first one, seeking, I, I think about what those are supposed to mean and what role I play in those uh, in my life going forward. So I guess I would take those three things, the seeker part, the sort of eternal optimist and uh, one who thinks a lot about the social connections. Mm. I feel like I've benefited a lot from all of those over <laughs> the years of knowing each other, so thank you. <laughs> um, I'm really curious to hear what you feel like you've been all up in recently. What have you been learning or exploring? Well, sure, there's a couple of things along that. And, and, and you know, oftentimes this just falls into the work world, right? So, so let me at least deal with that part of it. So I've been in the pharmaceutical industry for 25 years, 24 years now. Um, and currently I'm in a, a role that I, I started uh, almost a year ago now that really no longer deals with drugs per se, 
um, but is working with major healthcare systems throughout a, a two-state area in Washington, D.C., on helping them develop their programs for awareness, diagnosis, and if need be treatment in certain cardiac rare diseases. Um, and so it's by far and away the most interesting and challenging work that I've done in my career um, and the most satisfying in a lot of ways. So a lot of what I'm up into now is is perfecting that craft. I, you know, it, it was one of those experiences, if you've been in this, where for a long time you did a certain thing and you were that smart guy or gal who sat in the back of the room and everyone knew when they said something they would listen because you were the smart, experienced person. You had all the battle scars. You'd been through the wars. And now suddenly you go into a different aspect of it. And you're the person who doesn't know a darn thing and keep tripping over their shoelaces. So I've gotten through the tripping over the shoelaces part. I've got a basic level of knowledge and confidence in my work. And now it's how do I take that to the next level professionally and personally. And for me, getting into what I'm all up in is putting structure and habits around my work. And that really comes into my personal life as well. And what do I mean by that, SB? Let me let me give a little bit on that. I forget where I read this or heard it on a podcast. It doesn't matter. But someone said, I don't want to know about your goals. Tell me about your structure. Tell me about your habits. And I think that really rings true, at least for me, because I've written plenty of goals in my life, enough to fill a novel. And it never really pushed me to anything. I hate to say that, but it's true. It certainly was a directional thing, but mm -hmm. if I missed it or I made it or whatnot, it, it, it turned out not to be something lasting or long-term. And what I've come to believe, it's more about the habits and the structures you put in place around work and around personal life and relationships that ends up being what is important to you or achieve. Now, I'm not saying goals aren't important to me, certainly they're directional. But once you've set the direction, everything is about the habits and the structures and the processes you put in place. So a lot of that is what I put in to my life. So what, so what do I mean by that from a practical standpoint? Uh, so from a work standpoint, I broke my job down into six different categories of responsibilities. And every week I got a planning document with subsets under those six responsibilities of what falls in those categories. Okay, what needs to be planned on that next week and block the time for it literally in my calendar so that I repeat those same processes over and over. From a personal standpoint, if I want to do the things spiritually that I want to do or intellectually mm -hmm. or to get me off, it's a morning routine habit where now I get myself up an hour earlier and I do my readings, I do meditation just a little bit and I hate to say yoga because it's it's more stretching than yoga the way <laughs> I do it. But just those things that are important and make disciplined every day in order to get my day off to the, the start that I would like it to get to. Um, so that's what I mean about habits and structure. I don't know if I have a specific goal around spirituality or intellectual curiosity. But I know the habits and structure of doing those things on a daily basis will lead to improvements in all area and enjoyments in all area in my life. So that's a big thing of me this year. Again, what are the habits and what are the structures? Yeah. Can I, can I pause you there for a second? Cause I think you're making such an important 
point and something that I see all the time, which is we are a very, um, we're really enamored with goals as a society, right? And especially in our professional worlds. And it feels, it often feels to me, to your point, they do provide directional value, but it often feels to me like um, if then sort of thinking, right? Like I'm going to set this goal and then I get to feel good about it. And what I hear you describing is saying instead, like I can infuse my every day with that sense of feel good or fulfillment or values alignment or something like that. If it leads to fulfilling a goal, cool, that'd be fine. Right. But if it doesn't, you're still sort of reaping the benefits of having made the changes or the efforts in, in your daily life. Is that a way to say it? Am I, on track? I think you bring up two excellent points in that comment that really do clarify to, you know, things that, the way I think about it. First is oftentimes the achievement of a goal, while a, a great accomplishment and worthy is fleeting. Mm-hmm. Um, so great. You know, you won whatever sales ranking thing you might have been in or you completed this race and the mo- and, it, and the moment is great but then it's fleeting you know and it's funny in my industry we have this joke that you go from the top of the heap december 31st and then all the metrics for ranking people change in the next calendar year and you go to the bottom on january 1st mm. uh, you know it's all about what's in the moment so those goals like we're talking it's great to achieve them but that achievement and the, and the rewards from it can really be fleeting Mm-hmm. Uh, the what's lasting is what you talked about um, in terms of being that person. And the second thing is one of the greatest uh, comments I ever read, uh, heard about goals. And again, I, I forget the exact reference was success should be defined as the gradual realization of a worthy goal. Mm. So that if my goal is to whatever it might be, whether it's work or personal, if I'm putting the structure and the habits in place to achieve them and I'm not there for 300 days in the future or a year in the future, I'm still a success today because I'm developing the foundations not only to get there, but continue beyond whatever that goal might be, whether it's a personal development or professional development. And again, it's the habits, the structures, those kinds of disciplines. Uh, So I think you're right about that in both ways. It gets past that fleeting nature of the reward of a goal. Mm-hmm. And also it makes you understand that I'm I'm being successful today, even if I'm not at that goal by putting in those habits and structures um, that are worthy. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious because what we're talking about can be really uncomfortable for a lot of people um, in terms of being in the thick of, of things and feeling um, that sort of... Um, social push toward toward goals and um, and toward accomplishment, whatever that means. And I'm wondering if the ways that you described yourself as a human, if they are some of the tools that help you navigate and stay in in sort of the thick of of learning and whatever discomfort may or may not arise for you in those spaces. Yeah. So from a tool standpoint, um, I think that's an important aspect. You know, so what are the what are the resources I'm using? What are the the personal connections that, um, that I have? Uh, and there's a whole variety of this, but I think the most important tool for me in the beginning was, and I got this from a, a seminar through work, was understanding the why and really asking myself the why of what I do, what I, why I do the things that I do. And uh, if I can give a little background of the presentation around it, it was a professor, and I, I 
it's like a broken broken record. I forgot exactly the reference. I know he was from Columbia, but I forgot his name. But he was talking about the why, you know, to really get into the deep of why we do what we do or what our purpose is. And he brought up the the kind of somewhat hackneyed, tired old Apple example of their mission is to blah, 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 bring technological blah, blah, blah to people. And the, you know, the iPhone just happened to be their method of doing it, which all heard a thousand times and kind of, but then he brought up another example, which struck much more of a chord with me. And he's talking about Martin Luther King Jr. And he said, Martin Luther King Jr. for why was that he believed the laws of man must be in coordination or must be, you know, in mesh with the laws of nature or the laws of God. And that his vehicle for expressing that happened to be the civil rights movement because of the place and time he was in. Mm-hmm. And that just threw me for a loop because certainly when I think of Martin Luther King Jr., I'm thinking his why was the civil rights movement. But that wasn't really it. It was that the laws of man had to be in, in place with the laws of nature or the laws of God. If he was born in a different time frame, if he was born in a different place, he still could express that why. But it might have been a different vehicle than the civil rights movements of the 1950s and 60s of the United States of America. Mm. And that made me think a lot about it, about and, and, and I've only really worked through this on a professional level of, of why I do what I do. And how do I really dig deep on that? So. You know, the question that went, well, if I did the thing, well, I, why do I do? Well, to provide for my family or financials. Well, okay, that's great. But I could do a lot of things. I don't have to do this. Mm-hmm. I could do a lot of things and provide for my family. Oh, I get professional career Saturday, move up the ladder. I'm like, well, no. I mean, again, you can do <laughs> a lot of that. And for me, because of my optimism part that I talked about earlier, the way I thought about this and challenged myself to think about it is, how would I describe my why if I was in a zombie apocalypse? Now, SP, as we've <laughs> talked about before, and I've described this to you, I'm not here to convince anyone that the zombie apocalypse is going to happen. <laughs> you don't believe that. You know what? I'm not going through it again. <laughs> it's one of those, you know, if you know, you know kind of things, right? Mm-hmm. But for me, why it was a useful example is all the things I do professionally from a work standpoint are useless in the zombie apocalypse. I don't know how to operate weapons. <laughs> I, I don't know any medical training. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm in a medical field, I, I can't suture or ruin or set a bone or do anything <laughs> like that. Uh, I can't even get my lawnmower to start. Never mind, get the electrical <laughs> grid back online for a town. So what purpose would anything I do serve there? Because if my why is true, like MLK Jr.'s was, it should apply in a variety of situations, not just 21st century America in the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. And what that made me do was think a lot about what I do both professionally and even outside of my profession. What do I like to do volunteer wise? What do I like to do with my friends? What do I like to do with my colleagues in helping them achieve their goals? And what it came down to me, SB, is I understood my why to be I live to serve those who serve. Yeah. That there are 
in my field, dealing with the medical community, I have so much respect for the work that they do for patients and their communities. I can't do those things, but I know that I can serve them to help so they can serve better to their populations. And that's very fulfilling in the work that I do. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of the volunteer operate things that I've done with some of the food banks or other programs here, and even my charity, it's that same concept. It's not so much me directly helping people sometimes, but I, I get satisfied at, at doing everything I can to help those people that are best at helping the people kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so working on and understanding that why and what makes it important to me was one of my first tools to go in the bag to start putting structure over what I wanted to be and what I wanted to achieve. Mm. Um, any, uh, before I go into other tools, questions on that or does that make sense to you? That makes perfect sense to me and actually, you know, ties into to my why, which um, I've probably told you before, ties back to a, um, a Tupac quote, um, which is Tupac said he wasn't going to be the one to change the world, but he was going to be the one to spark the change. And I very much see that as as an expression of my coaching, yeah. and just sort of how yeah. I put myself into the world like I'm. I care about world change and I'm not, I'm not the person who's going to be in politics or community organizing or anything like that. Like I just don't have those skills. Right. But I can, I can help other people who have those skills really um, capitalize on them. So I feel like there's a lot of, of overlay uh, there. And as far as the second part of the other tools, uh, what I'm trying, and this is kind of going to sound contradictory. There's, I try to keep a broad open mind and try to learn from a lot of different resources. So books, podcasts, TED Talks, lectures, anything I can get a hold on, I will try to read and learn on. And I set specific times for that to help me. But also I'm trying to simplify my life as much as possible in many ways. So when I think about you know, habits and structures, as I mentioned several times now, one of the things I've come to understand about myself, and this is probably all folks, is our environment, our physical environment might be one of the biggest impediments to us achieving some of the things we'd like to achieve in terms of repeatable behaviors or habits. What do mm. I mean by that? So so I, you know, um, something as simple as if I have a really welcoming, comfortable space, to go to in the morning that's quiet and I enjoy, I'm going to be more likely to physically go there earlier in the day and read and meditate if I have a nice space. So make the nice space. Mm -hmm. uh, something as simple as if I want to do a reading on something, you know, physically having the book out there. I mean, mm -hmm. it seems simple, but it makes a difference. I'll give another example on that. You know, the things I found that I could suck up a lot of my time. As you know, I love my video games, right? I'm mm -hmm. a kid of the late 70s and 80s. Pac-Man. I mean, come on. That, that was our stuff. <laughs> I have to take the Xbox console and lock it away until times where I have free time, vacations, holidays, and then whatever. Because if I don't, I know it's such a distraction if it's sitting right there. The temptation of, ah, oh, I just don't feel like dealing with this work issue. I'm going to go play whatever I love for an app for 20 minutes and it turns into two hours. That can happen. So I, I think it is a focus on simplifying my physical environment to help me establish the habits and 
the processes that I want to do to be successful. Um, I don't know if this is true. Okay, I could be way off on this interpretation because from a religious standpoint, you know, I, I don't consider myself a Catholic or a Christian anymore. If I had to answer the question what I am, I, I don't know. Some sort of non-evangelical existentialist Buddhist stoic thing. I don't know. <laughs> something like that. But I did recently buy a copy of the Jefferson Bible. Oh. And I was reading through it and got to the point about if you're and I'm paraphrasing, of course, if your hand sins, then cut off your hand. If your eye sins, pluck out your eye because it would be better to go in the kingdom of heaven with one eye than, you know, hell with two eyes, essentially. And I always looked at that as, well, I mean, that seems kind of harsh. I mean, every time that I look at something with a little bit of lust, I got to pluck an eye. I mean, I would have been blind when I was 16, probably. <laughs> right? uh, but I think as I think that through, when I read that a few mornings ago, that's actually an ancient call to what I just talked about. Hmm. If the Xbox distracts you, lock up the Xbox. Mm -hmm. It's better to lock up the Xbox and not have it physically out there to distract. Now, there weren't Xboxes back then, right? <laughs> uh, but if there's something about your environment, whether it's things or people or situations, I I think that's a call to not depend on your personal um, willpower mm -hmm. to avoid it. That it's a call to remove whatever the item is, whether it's something as simple as an Xbox or it's friends that you have associated with that lead you to a path of something you don't want to do. Mm -hmm. Removing those from your world and not relying on your personal willpower to not be tempted by those things. Yes. Um, so that's that's where that simplification in my life comes in. Can, can I follow up on what you just said? Um, yeah. There's a, a question that was sort of tingling at me and you just gave me an entry point, which is um, where have you noticed in your life or have you noticed areas where, where following your own guidance or your own path of learning and curiosity has been in some way counter to countercultural in some way, whether like your family culture, or your work culture or society, like in a way that you felt like you were sort of working against the tide? Um, I used to have, uh, I have, well, he's still a friend of mine, but he moved to Ohio, uh, someone I used to work with. And, and we would have long conversations about, you know, he was a pretty, he was a devout Christian. And as I mentioned, um, that's not a faith that I'm a part of anymore I really haven't been for I would say 25 years or more and so we would definitely have divergent ways of viewing things but sometimes would end up in the same spot in terms of human interactions right mm -hmm. and I always thought that was the important part I will say this I think in general at least in our part of the world being a non-Christian you're already going against the count the culture a little bit um where, where I live and where we live in southwest Virginia and so um, so that's already a little bit of the of the counterculture side of it, I guess, where I've gone again. What I've said to some people that I think is counter in that respect is that when I stopped believing in the metaphysics of Christianity, some of the teachings made more relevance to me than they ever would have before, right? And I still 
would struggle a little bit, even in reading the, the, the Jefferson Bible, with some of the stuff statements that's in there. And I won't go through the Jefferson Bible. Google it if you don't know what it is. Um, some of the, not that the metaphysics, because he purposely takes that out, but there's still a couple of passages in there that hit me as, eh? And one of them is, and I'm still trying to filter it through the way I think, and I'm paraphrasing again, twice he talks about the birds can't make clothing, essentially. But, you know, they're still able to survive because mm. God provides for the birds. If God provides for the birds, how much more will he provide for you? And that doesn't mesh with my way of thinking about things, that some ethereal spirit from beyond provides all my needs and I can just, you know, give up and up. And so I, I was having a conversation with someone who was more devout on that way. And I, and I was trying to reinterpret it and say, in my mind, thinking it's not that different than me saying, as, as I feel as an internal optimist or even some Buddhist stuff, that whatever situation I find my life in, I will get the opportunity to choose my response to it and I'll be able to handle it. Mm -hmm. Not saying it's all going to be rosy and fun. There's going to be some parts that are terrible and hard but I'll get to choose a response and be able to handle it. Mm -hmm. It's sort of conceptually the same thing, but I'm just kind of throwing that to a spirit up beyond the clouds or something. Yeah. And they didn't like that at all. They kind of disagreed with me completely and thought I was missing the part. Um, but I, you know, that's a long winded answer to, to what you're a tough question there, how I felt I might've gone against the stream or against culture. I guess um, I've got another answer to that as well. And I think sometimes you have to talk about these things with a real sense of humility. And what I mean by that is not that, oh, you know, I'm not great, SB, you know, no, no, I don't, don't give me awards. Oh, no. I mean, humility in the sense that there's always more to understand about the self. There's always a, more to understand about your own biases in the way you look at things and mm -hmm. think how they might be interpreting it. And sometimes when you talk about that, that can go a little counter, right? Because people are uncomfortable in that space. For sure. Um, and that can get some uncomfortable counter conversations. Um, especially when you're dealing with a, a subset of folks that kind of already all think the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I definitely hear that. And I'm curious, um, and I'll start wrapping this up in a second, but when you run into, into those kinds of experiences, what do you do with the discomfort that arises for you? If that's even a fair question. No, of course it's a fair question. Um, you know, I, I, when I run into those situations, if it's it, a general discomfort around a real disagreement on philosophy of look at, I do put it at a point of trying to understand a bit of the viewpoint of the other person. I think that's kind of typical of what humans could do. But you do get to that point of, you know, I've had whatever my relationship might be with this person. Can it continue now knowing this big divide? Mm -hmm. 
yeah. right? And if it can, if I want to say, yes, how do I compartmentalize that? How do I make that not be a detriment to the positive parts of the relationship? Um, and that's not easy, right? Um, I was having a conversation with my sister about, you know, retirement. Do you want to stay where you are? Do you want to move? That kind of thing. And it was interesting how the stupidity of, well, what are the politics of that area? Mm -hmm. Like you would never think about that, right? So if I have a friend who I really enjoy and we get along, we have fun, but their politics are so opposite of mine, is that a bridge that can't be crossed to keep a friendship? And if it, if I want it to be, then how do I do that? How do I compartmentalize and say, well, their political views are the 17th most important thing to me about their quality as a human and as a, and a friend of mine? Mm -hmm. so can you do that? Can you structure it in that way? And I don't know if I always can. Mm -hmm. It's not the easiest thing in the world. Uh, so how do you deal with the uncomfort? You don't avoid it. Yes. You know, you be aware of it from even the way it makes you feel physically. And then you try to put thought on it and understand you can make the choice of how you're going to react to it. And that's all you can do, I think. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm really with you. And to your point earlier, I think we have a lot of um, habits just, you know, socially, just as humans, we have a lot of habits about avoiding discomfort of whatever sort, right? Whether it's physical or emotional or psychological. And so what you said, I think about um, being uncomfortable, acknowledging that that's a reality in that moment. And I think one of the things that I really get from, from my own um, studies of, of Buddhism, which I don't consider myself Buddhist, but I sure do like the teachings, is how to be in that discomfort mm -hmm. thoughtfully, right? And I feel yeah. like I hear you describing that as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think awesome. that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Thanks for having this conversation with me. I have another question for you. We had talked about, um, we wanted to highlight a nonprofit for no other reason than nonprofits are doing good work and we would like to give them spotlight whenever we can. So I want to ask you who, who you'd like to highlight and what makes them important to you. So I mentioned my why in the beginning about serving those who serve. And I, and I feel this charity does that. And, um, also is something near to my heart, and that's Rails to Trails. So if you're not familiar with Rails to Trails, it does exactly what it says. It turns old railroad lines into multi-use pathways um, so that people can enjoy them walking, jogging, biking, whatever it might be, individually, families. And why I love it so much and why I think it fits with, with who I am is you know, all the work that goes into converting these trails from helping raise awareness, identify them, the work that goes in. Uh, the legislative work to sometimes reclaim land, you know, the people that are going to benefit from that, you'll may never know them, never know who they are, uh, never, never even meet the vast majority of them, but it's going to benefit so many people beyond that. I love the idea of supporting the people that do the hard work to convert those trails, those rails into trails. Uh, again, I'm not out there pulling off the lines or anything of that nature or, or regrading the trails and or engineering it. I've got no skills in that, but to help those people out that do that. So all those communities can enjoy them and wherever they might be in the country. Um, and plus I love, as you know, SB, I love my bike rides. So uh, it fits perfectly with what I, uh, I feel is my why and purpose uh, in things. So rails to trails.
That's a great one. I love that. You and I have certainly enjoyed many a walking path together. That's right. We have on a app on a converted rail line trail. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Mike, thank you for for joining me in this experiment in hanging all up in it. And um, you are Mike Angelillo. I am SB Roz. Wish everybody who happens to be watching ease with whatever you're all up in.